students like Gary to be enthusiastic and always make the teacher feel like he's doing something for a change. So thanks, Gary. Well, good morning. Uh, last week, uh, Jer uh, not Jerry, but uh, what's his name, Chris, <laughs> presented a really powerful message, and I've been dwelling a upon that, and I thought we would take a bit of a break from the book of Exodus and follow along with this particular topic. And the main text comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verses 9 to 15. So if you have your Bibles handy, would you please turn with me to that particular chapter? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll read from verse 9 to 15. And the key verse here is verse 10. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God. And I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then all, then were all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. It's a fairly complicated passage, but the verse that I want to focus on this morning, and it's the title of our message, verse 10, for me, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And that's a very sobering thought. Father, we are so thankful to be here again this morning, and as we open thy holy pages of Scripture, we pray and trust that the Spirit of God will be pleased to speak to us through it and to reveal to us our shortcomings, our sins, our hypocrisy, and correct us while there is still yet time. For as thy word teaches, we must all appear before Christ one day as believers and give an account to him word for word, as to how we had lived for him, or had we lived only for self. So we pray, Father, that as we deliver this message this morning, that we might be blessed in its hearing and corrected, if need be, in our walk with thee. 
For we ask it all in our Savior's name and for his glory. Amen. Now this particular message is geared to the saved, not to the unsaved, to the saved. It is often something that we forget about as Christians. Many Christians are encamped at the Christ, at the cross. I received Christ as Savior. I'm saved. So I can live the way I want. Nothing could be farther from the truth. We have before us here this morning a most solemn text. It is a text which is rarely preached on today because it most assuredly must bring us all face to face with the reality that one day we must all stand before God and face the consequences of all our actions. There is nothing more detrimental to the well-being of our souls than a false teaching or a false doctrine that gives us an incorrect perspective of what is yet to come. For you see, our attitude and our behavior is directly determined by what we believe is about to happen next, whether it be in the immediate future or somewhat further on down the road. Our actions in life are directly related to our attitudes and our beliefs. All of us here this morning know this to be so, whether we have ever put it in such a way or not. A positive attitude in a child always brings positive results, whereas a negative attitude in a child rarely brings anything positive. In the opening verse of our text this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, the Apostle Paul writes, Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. The Apostle Paul lays before us all three great motives which should fuel our hearts into faithful service for our Savior. And the first of these is that all of our works and service must one day be tested or examined at the judgment seat of Christ. What a sobering thought this is for the Christian to remember that everything we say, that everything we do, that everything we think will one day be examined by the Lord Jesus himself and rewarded accordingly. Now we need to point out here that what we are talking about is the judgment seat of Christ where only believers will stand. This passage has nothing to do with the white throne judgment seat in Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, where only the lost will stand and will be banished to eternal fire. But here in this passage, in 2 Corinthians 5.10, the Apostle Paul has in mind the judgment seat of Christ for believers 
which we read about in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 to 15. Perhaps we could briefly turn to that passage for a moment and refresh our memories. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 to 15. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 15. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Many poor souls have misread these passages and have assumed that it is possible to lose one's salvation because of works, and as a result have lost many precious months of peace or maybe even years thinking that they might lose their salvation should they do such and such a thing or not do such and such a thing. I remember when I was but a babe in Christ, how frightened I became when a well-meaning but a badly misled older Christian warned me of the possibility of losing my salvation. It was like a dagger thrust deep into my soul, destroying every last bit of peace and joy that I had as a result of trusting Christ. And oh, how careful we as God's people must be with the message we present. We must study the word carefully, daily, learning how to rightly divide it, depending on the Holy Spirit to guide us to that end, so we do not mislead one single precious soul. Nevertheless, we are taught that every Christian will stand before Christ one day, and will give an account personally to him. Oh, dearly beloved, how often do we evaluate what we do for our Savior? How often do we examine our attitude in service to him? How often do we test what we say as to its validity and truthfulness? Harry Ironside, one of the great Preachers of the last century wrote the following concerning this day, quote, He, that is Christ, will go back over all the way you have come and will give his own estimate of all your service, of everything you have ever attempted to do for him. Will he have to say at such a time, you had a very wonderful opportunity to glorify me, but you failed because you were so self-occupied. You were so much concerned about what people would think of you. 
instead of being concerned about pleasing me. I will have to blot out all of that. I cannot reward you for that, for there was too much self in that service. And then he will point to something else, maybe something you had forgotten altogether, and he will say, there, you thought you failed in that, didn't you? You really thought you blundered so dreadfully that your whole testimony amounted to nothing. But I was listening and observing, and I knew that in that hour of weakness, your one desire was to glorify me. And though nobody applauded you, I took note of it, and I will reward you for it. What a joy it will be to receive his approval in that day. If we learn to live as Paul did, with the judgment seat of Christ before us, we will not be men-pleasers, but we will be Christ-pleasers, end of quote. The Bible clearly presents five distinct rewards for faithful service to our Lord. We read about the crown of life in James 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. This can be called the lover's crown. Without the love of God in the heart of the believer, trials can cause him to become bitter and critical, and lose the crown of life. Then there is the crown incorruptible, as presented in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye might obtain And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly. So fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. So what is Paul saying here? It's this. Paul uses the Greek games or the Olympic games, which we can all identify with. He uses these games to illustrate the spiritual race of each believer. Just as the Greeks competed to receive a corruptible crown, so the believer runs to receive an incorruptible crown. Under the Greek games, no man could compete unless he, first of all, was a Greek citizen, born of Greek parents. Similarly, no unsaved person can participate in the service of the Lord for rewards unless he or she is first born again of the Spirit of God. And just like the athlete who trains diligently to be in tip-top condition for their competition, so too must the Christian 
prepare diligently to run this spiritual life and keep his or her body under subjection. Otherwise, he or she will become a castaway. He or she will drop out of the race. He won't or she won't lose her salvation, but he will or she will lose the reward of the incorruptible crown. So how does the Christian prepare and run this race? Number one, first the Christian must deny anything that will weigh him or her down or hold him or her back. Hebrews 12.1 Secondly, the Christian must keep his or her eyes fixed on Christ. Never mind about others. Never mind about the track conditions. Never mind about the weather conditions. Fix your eyes upon Christ and Christ alone. Number three, our strength is to be found in the Lord. We are to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, tells us Ephesians 6.10. Number four, we must be ready to lay everything on the altar of the Lord, just like the athlete who placed his life on hold in order to compete and win the medal. Number five, we must by faith refuse anything that would impede our spiritual progress. It's not an easy race to run. But if we are genuinely his, then we will run it with the best of our ability. We are to run this race and not be spiritual spectators. The Bible also talks about the crown of rejoicing in 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 19 to 20. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. The crown of rejoicing is the soul winner's crown. Our greatest work this side of heaven is to win others for the Lord Jesus Christ to bring others to the saving knowledge of the Lord as their personal Savior is our greatest achievement. But winning others for Christ is impossible if our own lives are in spiritual shambles or if our heart has grown cold toward the things of Christ and self is ruling. In such cases, the words of our mouth will be empty. There will be no fruit or harvest. No one will want to receive an empty Christ. Our lives must first and foremost reflect the indwelling Christ and his righteousness before we can successfully lead others to Christ. Then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 5 to 8, Paul speaks about the crown of righteousness. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. 
for I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. The crown of righteousness is a reward. Do not confuse it with the righteousness of God, which the believer receives when he or she receives Christ as Savior. The righteousness of God is a gift to be received by the lost sinner at the point of conversion. But the crown of righteousness is a reward to be earned by the saved. If the Christian looks for and loves the doctrine of the return of Christ, it will profoundly affect his or her whole life. How sad it is to see so much of the so-called Church of God today living for self, completely oblivious to the fact that Christ could return at any moment. And then all that we have strived so hard for to achieve in the form of material things will be all in vain. Oh, I trust that all of us here this morning, those who may be listening by cassette or audio sermon, are all looking and waiting and hoping for his imminent return. If not, then why not? And lastly, but certainly not least, the crown of glory is mentioned in 1 Peter, verse 5, or uh, Peter chapter 5, verses 2 to 4. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. The crown of glory is a special reward for the faithful and obedient God-called elder or bishop or pastor teacher. He will receive this reward when the chief shepherd shall appear. And every believer may share in the pastor's reward or the teacher's or the elder's reward through prayer for him, by encouraging him, and by meeting his needs through ministry to him. But the elder, the true elder, will earn his crown by feeding the church. He is to proclaim the word of God without fear faithfully, clearly, honestly, and where necessary, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering, so that the child of God might be properly founded in Christ. He is to lead the church by personal example, not authoritatively, but graciously by his own life. He is to protect the flock from dangerous false teachings through the sound exposition of Scripture. 
He is to lead by example and not rule by mandate. And if he fulfills his calling faithfully, then he will receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Then as we come back to our main text in 2 Corinthians 5, 9-14, we see Paul's second great motive for proclaiming the gospel of Christ. The first was Christ's imminent return. But the second motive is found in verse 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. This is perhaps a forgotten motive in today's preaching, the terror of the Lord. Today's preaching often forgets that the Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews 10.31. But there is something for every Christian to fear in God, and that is his hatred of sin. King David, who was the apple of God's eye, learned experientially God's severe judgment for sin when he willingly committed adultery with Bathsheba. And God took his firstborn son away, Second Samuel 11. And then when David disobeyed God and numbered Israel in First Chronicles 21, God once again was forced to execute his judgment upon David and the people of Israel. In that particular instant, the Lord sent pestilence upon Israel, and there fell of Israel 70,000 men. First Chronicles 21.14 Neither should we forget what happened to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, who lied to Peter and the Holy Ghost about the sale of their land. God struck both of them dead, and they were buried immediately afterwards. This is why we should all be concerned as believers about unconfessed sin in our lives. God, though he is merciful, gracious, and loving, he is still a God of justice and judgment and righteousness. In 1 Peter 4, 17-18, the Apostle Peter writes, For the time has come. That judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? If our loving God and Savior cannot overlook one thing in the lives of his beloved saints, but if everything has to come to light in that day, that is the day that each of us must stand before him, give an account. What will it be like for those who have rejected Christ the Savior to have all of their sins brought up before them at the white throne judgment seat and face a just and an awful sentence of doom? And as the Apostle Paul went out to a Christless world, he realized that he was going to lost men and women 
who would someday have to face a most horrible faith, fate if they stood before the Creator without Christ as their Savior. To Paul, it was not just mental affirmation, as it is with most men who believe the Scriptures to be true, but it was also a physical and a spiritual reality. We remember his near-death experience in Acts 14.19, where Paul and Barnabas had been preaching when the unbelieving Jews came from Antioch and Iconium to Lystra where Paul was preaching. They stirred up the people to anger and hysteria and persuaded the people to stone Paul. It was at this particular moment where Paul, I believe, experienced his out-of-body death experience, which he talks about in 2 Corinthians 12, 1-5. It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago. Whether in the body, I cannot tell, or whether out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such a one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which are not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in my infirmities. The things which Paul saw when he was caught up into the third heaven were so incredible and so marvelous that he dared not talk about them to others. For 14 years he kept these things to himself, for fear that he might direct glory to himself. Likewise, Paul knew that the fate of the lost was so horrendous that it was too unspeakable, and that mortal men could not possibly grasp it with their sin-ruined minds. But Paul had a gospel for lost men, a gospel which, if they believed, would change their destiny forever. And because of his experiences, he was willing to go to any means to see the lost one for Christ. He describes his hardships in 2 Corinthians 11, 23-28, not to bring glory to himself, but to remind the church of his complete devotion to Christ and to his people. He writes, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant. In stripes above measure. In prisons more frequent. In deaths off. Of the Jews five times received I forty stripes save one. Thrice I was beaten with rods, once was I stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren in weariness and painfulness, 
in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Oh, dearly beloved, do we not all fall short in our efforts to reach the lost? Do we not all become ashamed at what we have accomplished for our Savior in the way of service when we see what real devotion is like? And finally, as we go back to our main text in Second Corinthians 5.14, we see Paul's third motive for preaching the gospel to the lost with such devotion, the love of Christ. It was that all-conquering love of Christ that caught hold of the proud, boastful, self-righteous heart of the cruel Saul of Tarsus one day on the road to Damascus, that religious hypocrite and zealot who, with a heart filled with hatred, for the name of Jesus, came seeking to bind all who love Christ and to cast them all into prison. It was there, that glorious moment, that Saul of Tarsus met our loving Savior in Acts 9-4 for the very first time. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Oh, how precious are the moments of personal conversion when the Christ of glory enters the scene and dispels all darkness from our hearts. It is then and only then that the sin-ruined heart begins to grasp the love of God and the incredible display of that love on the cross of Calvary. If that love was able to transform such a Christ-hating persecutor as Saul of Tarsus, then there is no limit as to what it can do for a world of lost sinners. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. And so his third motive for proclaiming the gospel of salvation to lost men and women was God's love for all sinners. The Bible clearly presents the love of God as one of the most powerful reasons in the conversion of sinners. The Apostle John, often called the Apostle of Love writes about the love of God more than any other topic. What better known passage is there than in all of Scripture than John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Or John 13.35 by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Or 1 John 4, verses 7 to 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And every one that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not 
knoweth not God, for God is love. All of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, vividly describe the love of God which is demonstrated on the cross of Calvary and will be forever embedded in the hearts of all those who have been genuinely saved. Throughout the centuries, hymn writer after hymn writer speaks of the precious blood of Christ shed for sinners on the cross of Calvary. There can be no clearer demonstration of our Savior's love for us than in the giving of his own life to redeem us from the penalty of our own sins. What greater motive can a human being have to do good to others than love? This then brings us now to the conclusion of our message for this morning. But as always, before I step down from this platform, I must ask you this. Are you saved? Are you genuinely saved? And if you are saved, what are you saved from? And what are you saved for? The Bible teaches that Christ came into this world to save sinners from their sins. Luke 19.10 If your life has not changed dramatically since receiving Christ as Savior, then friend, I fear that something is wrong and you must seriously Evaluate whether your profession of faith was genuine. If we are truly saved, then we will have a deep compassion and desire for others to be saved as well. And do everything that we possibly can to witness to them. And like Paul, we will have the same three powerful motives to proclaim the gospel of salvation to the lost. Let's pray. Father, we thank thee for the word of God. We thank thee that it tells us of the love of God who sent his son into this sin-ruined world to redeem sinners unto himself. And we thank thee that the word of God tells us so much more. It tells us what God's expectations are for each of us. It tells us how to live righteously. It tells us how to live joyfully. It tells us how to get to heaven. It tells us that nothing, once we are in Christ, can ever separate us from the love of God. And so, Father, this morning as we have deliberated upon this most difficult passage which tells us that we must all appear before Christ one day. We pray that we take it to heart, that as we leave this place, we will genuinely examine to see whether we be in the faith and examine whether what we do day by day is for Christ or is it for our own self. Part us now, we pray, with thy blessings, and keep us from harm's way and evil. And if the Lord be not come, may it please thee once again to bring us together round his table next Lord's Day. For we always ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen.